All right, welcome, welcome to Maximus Call-In Radio. It is Thursday, November 11th, and we're coming back with another great episode this week. So for those of you who are not familiar and joining us for the first time, I'm Dr. Cam Sapa. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist and psychiatry professor at UCSF Medical School, and I'm also the CEO of Maximus. We are a consumer telemedicine company. You can check us out at MaximusTribe.com. Uh, we provide a platform that provides prescription medications, supplements, and coaching that can safely and effectively double your testosterone levels. If you are in California and Florida, we're currently operational there. You can check us out, as I mentioned, at MaximusTribe.com since they are sponsoring this podcast. And what I do every week with this call-in radio show is I take any and all questions regarding health and performance optimization. So if you have any questions around nutrition, exercise, sleep, focus, relationships, psychology, or pharmacology, I am happy to answer any and all of them, uh, whether if it's one-off questions or coaching you through a particular situation or issue. All you have to do is raise your hand if you're joining us on Clubhouse, uh, or you can raise your hand if you're listening to us on Instagram Live, Discord, uh, or type in a question if you are listening on YouTube Live, and I'm happy to answer it. Uh, We start every episode with a weekly unpopular opinion um, and uh, usually touch on some interesting research or scientific findings. Uh, So this week's weekly unpopular opinion is that vitamin E is actually a very underrated nutrient uh, and an underappreciated nutrient for hormone optimization. So I want to specifically actually talk talk about um, a study that was published uh, way back in 1982 in Japan called The Effect of Vitamin E on the Function of Pituitary Gonadal Axis in Male Rats and Human Subjects. So um, a lot of people might have heard of vitamin E. Um, It's one of the basic fat-soluble vitamins, but the thing that a lot of people don't know is that there's actually eight different forms of vitamin E, Uh, and they basically fall into two different groups. One are called the tocopherols, and the other is called the tocotrienols. And each of these two clusters have an alpha, beta, gamma, and delta type. So that's two times four or eight types. Now, almost all the vitamin E that is on the market and most of the studies that have been done on vitamin E are on the uh, tocopherol or specifically the alpha tocopherol form of it. Now, um, that's important because there are other types of vitamin E called tocotrienols that are unique. Um, Vitamin E essentially fell out of favor as a dietary supplement uh, because there was some research that showed that people who were taking high-dose vitamin E supplements uh, had an increased risk of all-cause mortality, meaning that uh, they were essentially dying sooner um, for whatever reason. Now, it's associational. We're not sure if the vitamin E was causing it, but I think a lot of people were essentially suggesting as a result of that, the high-dose vitamin E supplementation wasn't particularly safe. However, as I mentioned, the tocotrienols are actually functionally unique compared to the tocopherols, um, and they have some unique effects that uh, enhance, uh, that provide uh, neuroprotective, anti-cancer, and even some cholesterol-lowering properties. We're eventually actually gonna have uh, Dr. Barry Tan, who's probably like the world's leading expert on vitamin E, on the Maximus podcast, and he'll talk more about this. Uh, If you're interested in that, subscribe to our YouTube channel uh, at Maximus Tribe. 
Uh, but today I want to specifically talk about this paper. So this paper actually looked at um, vitamin E acetate. That was a specific type of vitamin D. I'll ignore the rat study stuff because I feel like that's less relevant, but they did specifically uh, look at the effects of vitamin E sub uh, supplementation uh, in humans. They had them take a dose of vitamin E that was 483 milligrams on a regular basis. Now this is a small study. I think it was done in about 10 people. So, you know, the conclusions may be a little bit limited, but I think it was sort of an interesting uh, you know, study because of the, the findings that they uh, were able to find. So they looked at uh, basically two hormone markers as a result of this supplementation. One was LH, or luteinizing hormone, uh, which stimulates testosterone production, and then they looked directly at testosterone production. So they didn't find an increase in LH, although that may have been an uh, artifact, artifact of the fact that the baseline levels of LH were elevated, and they seemed to, for some reason, drop during supplementation during the first two weeks and then rose back up by after eight weeks of supplementation. So I think it's kind of an inconclusive finding. However, they did find that testosterone levels uh, tended to increase over time as a result of vitamin E acetate supplementation. They started out as a baseline level of 416, uh, which is a you know modest sort of normal level of total testosterone in a average healthy male. And it actually increased to 544 nanograms per deciliter. Now, what does that actually mean? So this was about a 31% increase in total testosterone after eight weeks of vitamin E supplementation. Now, if you're a loyal listener to the Maximus you know, content, I always talk about 50% is sort of my threshold for whether something is considered clinically meaningful. So this, like most other vitamins, supplements, or herbs, falls short of essentially the effect that you'd want to see or the effect size that you'd want to see in order to uh, notice a clinically meaningful effect. Meaning that if you took this, like you listened to this and were like, all right, I'm going to try this out. I'm going to take 483 milligrams of vitamin E acetate, just like in this study. Would you actually feel a difference? Would you actually notice an improvement in your mood, your virility, or your functioning? Probably not. It's, it's subtle enough that unless it's above sort of 50%, you're probably not gonna notice a difference. As a basis of comparison, our protocol, which uses a prescription drug, and clomiphene, uh, sees uh, uh, improvements on the order of uh, somewhere between 50 and 150%, or about 1.5 to 2.5x. So it's a much more drastic improvement, and you notice the, the improvement uh, to a much greater degree. Now here's the interesting part of the study. Um, in addition to just giving them vitamin E supplement, they also did essentially what's called an HCG test. HCG is another hormone. It essentially mimics LH, or luteinizing hormone, and it's very similar to the enclomiphene that we prescribe in our protocol, except it's injectable while we provide an oral prescription medication, which is obviously uh, much more palatable because you just pop pill versus having to inject yourself intramuscularly, which is painful and inconvenient. But, you know, this was done in a laboratory, so they probably had someone injecting these poor folks who signed up for this study. Now, here's the interesting thing. HCG increases testosterone. Uh, a lot of people might commonly know that it's used for its pro-fertility effects. Uh, a lot of folks may who are listening may or may not know that if you do testosterone replacement therapy, it's actually a male contraceptive, essentially. It shuts down your endogenous production of testosterone, shutting down your luteinizing hormone, and shutting down your follicle-stimulating hormone, LH and FSH, 
which makes your balls shrink, makes you infertile as a guy, uh, and reduces spermatogenesis or the production of sperm, which is obviously problematic, especially if you're a younger guy and you want to maintain your fertility, you want to maintain your ability to have kids. So sometimes what doctors do for younger guys who are on TRT, although younger guys honestly shouldn't be on TRT, if you're interested in this, listen to the podcast that I did with Dr. Jim Hotling, H-O-A-T-L-I-N-G on YouTube. He, he basically talks about how no guy under the age of 50 should be on TRT. Uh, that's because unless you have primary hypogonadism, meaning your testicles aren't working or they're injured or you had chemotherapy, you should stimulate your own natural production of testosterone. But in the rare instance in which you have a young guy who's on TRT, they'll often co-administer HCG in order to maintain their fertility. Now, getting back to the study, they gave these guys uh, daily dosages of HCG over four days. Now, what happened with these folks uh, in terms of their testosterone levels? They found, I'm actually like pulling up the results here, um, uh, on average people started out with a total testosterone level of 416, as I mentioned, that's what's called the baseline levels. Now when you give people HCG, it boosted their testosterones up to uh, 609. So that's basically a 47% increase. Again, just shy of the 50% threshold or benchmark that I sort of suggested as what's considered a clean, clinically meaningful effect. But here's the really, really interesting result of this study. In another group of participants, they actually gave them a combination of vitamin E and HCG. So a nutritional supplement along with a prescription drug. And they found in that group, their baseline level started a little bit higher at 553 nanograms per deciliter from the, on the first day. But then the levels actually skyrocketed to 1,016 nanograms per deciliter on the fourth day of HCG, which is an 85% increase and above the 50% threshold that I consider to be clinically meaningful. So here's the interesting effect. So, and how do I summarize this study? Basically, the conclusion that I take from this is that vitamin E as a standalone nutritional supplement uh, slightly boosts testosterone, but not to a degree that you're gonna feel or really would be uh, you know, recommended essentially to take for testosterone boosting purposes. However, if you are taking a prescription drug like HCG or perhaps like enclomiphene, it may synergistically enhance the effects of that prescription drug above and beyond just taking that prescription drug alone. So that's the really interesting finding from this paper is that vitamin E is truly a supplement, meaning it enhances the effect of pharmaceutical drugs that are better suited for enhancing testosterone, but it may stimulate essentially the body's ability to produce more of its own LH, uh, FSH, and, and uh, testosterone. Now, for a long time, we've known that vitamin E has essentially some pro-fertility effects. Vitamin E in particular is known to improve spermatogenesis or the production of sperm in men. So oftentimes, if couples are uh, you know, having difficulty conceiving, they make sure that their nutrients and nutritional supplementation is on point uh, including elements like vitamin E. But now this, this study I think adds to the research literature and suggests that if you're on a prescription protocol like Maximus, uh, making sure that you have sufficient vitamin E may enhance the effects above and beyond just taking it alone. And that's sort of our philosophy and strategy at Maximus is we always start with a evidence-based, very efficacious, prescription drug and then complement or supplement that with very particular nutrients or supplements that may slightly boost or 
enhance the effects of our prescription protocol. So you kind of get the best of both worlds. Um, unfortunately, I think there's this notion out in the general public that prescription drugs are unsafe or dangerous and supplements or natural is the way to go. Uh, I think that's actually a, a bunch of horseshit, to be uh, very, very frank. And the reason for that is nutritional supplements are not um, standardized in terms of their quality. Um, there's not tested for toxicity or purity. You have no idea, honestly, if you buy a nutritional supplement on Amazon, if what's on the label is actually what's inside the bottle. In fact, there's a lot of like consumer reports like tests that have been done showing that the majority of, for instance, phosphatidylserine supplements, which is a supplement that I talked about in one of the previous shows, almost the uh, all of them uh, outside of a couple reputable brands like now are essentially underdosed. On the other hand, pharmaceutical drugs are essentially uh, insured to have a high degree of purity, lack of toxicity, um, at least due to outside other agents above and beyond the, the normal toxicity of the drug itself. So I actually am presenting a little bit of a contrarian thesis that uh, prescription drugs from a toxicology perspective are much safer than nutritional supplements. Of course, it depends on what prescription drug you're talking about. Some drugs obviously have much higher risk profiles, but the drugs that we use in the Maximus King protocol are relatively safe. Uh, in clomiphene in particular, interclinical trials showed uh, side effects that were no different than placebo. So you're talking about side effects on the order of one to 3%. Head, headache, dizziness, nausea, etc., which are very common. And in fact, you give someone a placebo, <laughs> they'll have the same sort of headache, dizzy, and nausea that may have nothing to do with the medications, but just comes from the stresses of everyday living, so to speak. So to conclude, uh, uh, make sure that you're getting enough of your fat-soluble vitamins. I always think it's better to obviously get these things from food rather than nutritional supplements because of the quality issue that I just talked about. Um, but, you know, good sources of vitamin E, if you are interested in making sure that that's the case, are nuts, seeds, uh, green leafy vegetables, um, and uh, uh, animal-based foods in particular are good sources of vitamin E. Uh, abalone, goose, salmon, trout, uh, crayfish, roe or fish eggs uh, are all high in vitamin E. So as long as you're eating like an animal-based diet, um, you should be getting sufficient vitamin E uh, particularly if you're getting good, nutrient-dense, high-quality food. All right, so with that study discussed, I'm going to open up the floor to questions. We have some that have been submitted from previous weeks, but I want to give some folks on Clubhouse a chance to raise your hands if you have any questions about, like I said, diet, exercise, sleep-focused relationships, psychology, or pharmacology. Raise your hand, and I'm happy to give you a little bit of guidance and coaching. Otherwise, we'll go to questions from uh, last week. Um, there's a comment. Uh, let me just check YouTube to make sure there's no comments on here. We do have one question from YouTube, Dr. Cam. Mm -hmm. uh, Rip Wolfman asks, hello, how about very low dose anastrazole or letrozole to boost testosterone? It is improvement to work, but maybe it lowers estradiol too much. Yeah, this is a great question. So the... Uh, question that's being asked is what about using prescription aromatase inhibitors as a testosterone boosting strategy? Um, so it's a great question uh, and it's a kind of a clever strategy. Um, the two sort of non-injectable, non-TRT strategies that have been used in order to increase testosterone have been either using SERMs, which are selective estrogen receptor modulators such as clomidor and clomiphene, which is what we use. Essentially that works by blocking the estrogen receptor 
which stimulates the body to produce more LH and produce more of its own testosterone. So what happens in, uh, when you use that strategy is testosterone and estradiol both essentially increase. Now, a lot of guys are afraid of estradiol or estrogen because they associate testosterone with being the male or masculinizing hormone and estradiol associated with being the female or feminizing hormone. So they're always afraid of estradiol rising too high. Now, that does make sense in any other context, but in the context of taking a CIRM or an estrogen receptor blocker, it doesn't make as much sense because even if there's extra estradiol floating around your system, uh, it, it has an inability to bind to the estrogen receptor because of the, the blockage that's happening uh, via the drug. And so it's not as much of a concern. Now, the strategy that was asked uh, by this uh, individual on uh, YouTube uh, is asking about, well, what about taking an aromatase inhibitor? So what's an aromatase inhibitor? Aromatase is the enzyme that basically converts testosterone to estradiol. If you're really interested in this subject, listen to the podcast that I recorded with Dr. Eugene Shippen, who's one of the, you know, uh, gods, I would argue, of, you know, testosterone optimization, has been practicing for almost 50 years now as a physician, uh, godfathers, I should say. Um, and he talks about that, you know, if you, if you listen to the old sort of biblical story of sort of Eve being derived from Adam's rib, uh, it, it's almost like a, a, a symbol, symbolization of how testosterone or the male hormone essentially converts to estradiol or the female hormone through aromatase. And so what you can do in order to increase testosterone is you can take an aromatase inhibitor, which blocks this enzyme and essentially blocks the conversion of testosterone to estradiol. Now, there are uh, common uh, aromatase inhibitors. The, the questioner asked about two specific ones. Um, one of those is Arimidex, the brand name, or Anastrozole, or Letrozole. They're two very powerful uh, aromatase inhibitors that block that enzyme. So what happens when you do that, it does actually work in terms of increasing testosterone. What happens though is it's uh, unlike a serum which increases testosterone and estradiol, on an aromatase inhibitor, your, your testosterone goes up, but your estradiol actually decreases slightly. Now, interestingly, it doesn't shut down your estradiol completely because uh, testosterone is being boosted, which would normally increase estradiol, but because it's an aromatase inhibitor, it's slightly pushing it down. So there are studies that, for instance, would see a very similar effect to the HCG study and, and vitamin E study that I just cited, where someone on an aromatase inhibitor may start out with a testosterone of, let's say, an average level of 500 total T. On an aromatase inhibitor, you may actually see your testosterone levels double to 1,000, but your estradiol levels starting out at 20 would see a pretty significant drop from 20 down to, let's say, 15. So you probably would see your estradiol drop by approximately 25, maybe up to 50%, which you have to watch because uh, estradiol or estrogen in men is actually very important. I kind of describe it as like a Goldilocks zone where you don't want it to be too high, you don't want it to be too low. And this is the interesting thing about male libido in particular is when estradiol gets crushed down to uh, sub-physiological levels, guys do not feel good and they're, you know, they get kind of dry, they get creaky joints, painful joints, and they get a loss of libido. At the same time, if your estradiol goes too high or estrogen gets too high, you also get a loss of libido, but you get a little bit of different symptoms. Sometimes you get gynecomastia or the development of male breast tissue, kind of that puffy nipple phenomenon. Uh, you get sort of more emotional, you're crying easily at you know, sad movies or commercials kind of phenomenon. 
Um, and so you don't want it to be too high or too low. The problem with aromatase inhibitors is that although they do increase testosterone, they decrease estradiol. And estradiol is particularly important in men, um, not just for the libido reasons that I mentioned, but it also has some uh, neurocognitive properties that are very uh, important. So it's very important for the male brain to actually ironically have estrogen uh, in terms of its cognitive functioning and your sort of mental performance, if you will. And taking these very, very strong aromatase inhibitors uh, uh, reduces estradiol, which is not great for how you sort of feel mentally. So interestingly, uh, there was a clinical trial that was published, I believe it was in Singapore, that was looking at the use of letrozole, ironically for fertility purposes. They were, they were treating guys who had fertility problems, but otherwise had normal testosterone. They found their testosterone levels skyrocketed. As I mentioned, estradiol went down somewhere on the order of 25 to 50%. But here's the interesting thing. 51% of those people reported a lower libido, even though their testosterone level was above 1,000. You're talking about 95th percentile, almost alpha male levels of testosterone, if you will. So this is the sort of the paradox where uh, testosterone is not the only thing that's important for libido. Now, higher levels of testosterone are associated with better libido, but as I mentioned, your estradiol levels need to be good in that Goldilocks zone as well. And so the problem with aromatase inhibitors is while they increase testosterone, they crush your estradiol levels and guys just generally don't feel good when their estradiol levels are too low. So as I mentioned, the, the majority of folks, even though their, their testosterone levels are sky high, uh, report worse libido, report worse cognitive functioning. And so I don't really think it's a great strategy to be honest with you. Um, and you know, these drugs have been around forever. I, quite frankly, if I think it would have, if it, it does increase testosterone levels, but it doesn't make people feel good. And in the end, that's what really matters. You don't, you don't want just like the numbers to be good uh, in terms of the scoreboard, but you want to actually feel better and perform better. Um, and, I, and I think that strategy essentially would have been more popular if it actually worked. So I'm not a fan of that strategy. Uh, that's why we don't do it actually as part of the Maximus protocol. Um, and so I, I think the hype uh, or the numbers essentially around using aromatase inhibitors um, don't really make sense. I think they're better used as an adjunctive uh, thing to, if you're taking other things such as testosterone replacement and your estradiol levels are getting too high, sometimes doctors provide some very low doses of aromatase inhibitors to just control that estradiol, get it back into down to that Goldilocks zone so that people are feeling better. But interestingly, if you listen to sort of the latest, uh, more cutting edge hormone replacement doctors, uh, they're less and less prescribing aromatase inhibitors and basically arguing, yeah, when you increase testosterone, your estradiol runs high too, but it's not a bad thing. The, really, you're judging it by how do people feel. If, you're just, if your libido is good, your energy is good, your mood is good, your focus is good, there's, it doesn't matter what the numbers say, you're going by how people are actually feeling. And so you don't need to control it by adding a second medication such as an aromatase inhibitor in order to dial it in. That's sort of the latest and greatest thinking I would say. Um, but as a standalone, using an aromatase inhibitor as a standalone uh, or solitary treatment for the improvement of testosterone, like I said, your numbers will go up on paper. You're probably not gonna feel better. And I also don't, I kind of question the long-term safety of that in terms of what are the long-term effects of your uh, on the brain in terms of shutting off aromatase? Probably not great. At least with enclomiphene, your estradiol levels are still staying, you know, in the normal to high normal range. 
um, uh, even if it's being blocked selectively uh, in certain areas like the pituitary versus when you're shutting off aromatase, you're shutting it off pretty much all over your body that the aromatase uh, inhibitor can, can access anyway, uh, pr probably outside of the testicles. But basically all around your body, you're shutting off aromatase and I don't think that's particularly a great idea. But absolutely great question, makes a lot of sense, but I think it looks better on paper than in terms of the actual performance that it's delivering for you. So I don't think it's a particularly great strategy. All right, um, any other questions? I, can, uh, I think someone's raising their hand on um, Clubhouse. If you have other questions, feel free to raise your hands. Otherwise I can get to questions from last week. We've got one more question coming in from YouTube. Go for it. How would the King protocol affect someone with pubertal gyno since it's an estrogen blocker? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, you know, a lot of folks have concern about gyno or gynecomastia in terms of the development of um, male breast tissue. As I mentioned, with um, certain treatments like testosterone replacement therapy, it can elevate your estradiol levels, uh, elevate prolactin levels, um, and as a result of that, uh, either induce or exacerbate pre-existing uh, pubertal gynecomastia that uh, folks may have already had. Now, here's the interesting thing about enclomiphene. Because enclomiphene is an estrogen receptor antagonist or blocker, it can actually be used uh, as a treatment for gynecomastia. So it should not only not exacerbate or worsen any pubertal gynecomastia that you have, but it may, even though it's not, you know, we're not going to provide it as a treatment for this, it may, just because of its mechanism of action, actually improve gyno. So I would say in the relative scheme of treatments that you do in order to increase your testosterone, you, the use of the Maximus protocol was very gyno friendly in the sense that it should definitely not make it worse and in fact may make it better. So I would actually say there shouldn't really be an exclusion or an issue if you've had some gyno that you had from puberty or your teenage years. Uh, and in fact, maybe you'll be pleasantly surprised in terms of the outcome. Got one more question for you, Dr. Cam. Mm -hmm. What's your advice for having optimal mental health? Episode. Yeah, that's a that's a great uh, but uh, very wide ranging sort of question in terms of optimal mental health. Um, I could probably do a whole show. In fact, I could probably do a, a whole lecture series on optimal mental health. So um, I have an interesting thesis. I'll, I'll talk a little bit about my private practice. So I have a private practice um, in which I still see uh, patients. They're actually, ironically, mostly tech CEOs and VCs because uh, that's the community of people that I'm around. And those folks um, often actually are not struggling with mental health issues. I would actually say 80% of my clientele do not meet the diagnostic criteria for a DSM-5 mental health disorder. Now, occasionally people come in with, you know, pretty run-of-the-mill stuff, depression, anxiety, ADHD, etc. But the majority of my patients, the 80%, are usually coming because they just have a lot of stress running a company and they just want to perform better with less stress and, you know, do a better job running their company, running their life, and running their own brain. And so in order to do that, uh, you know, I use sort of the foundation of evidence-based psychotherapy. So I use a therapy called acceptance and commitment therapy or ACT. In fact, that's what I train the fourth year psychiatry residents in at UCSF. If you're really interested in exploring this, I would highly recommend a book. It's called The Happiness Trap by Dr. Russ Harris. 
an Australian colleague of mine. He does a phenomenal job of basically uh, making ACT accessible to the public. So what is ACT? ACT is basically a mindfulness and values-based psychotherapy, but what's really interesting about it is that it takes a very non-pathological view to mental health. So for instance, it actually would argue that when you know a typical patient comes in and sees a psychologist like myself and says, hey doc, I feel sad, or hey doc, I feel worried. I don't want to feel that way anymore. That, in a lot of cases, would be considered an acceptable goal of treatment. They'd be like, sure, we're going to do some therapy. Uh, you know, Hopefully, your anxiety or your sadness will decrease by 50% over the course of our work together. But if you're talking to an ACT practitioner like myself or some of the people that I've trained, that actually would not be an acceptable goal for treatment. Why not? Why isn't it acceptable to want to feel better? And the reason is because in ACT, the belief actually is is that it's not that sadness or anxiety or negative thoughts or feelings are the problem, but it's the avoidance of those thoughts and feelings, the desire to make them want to go away, that's actually the problem, right? So I'll give you a concrete example. Now a panic attack, if anyone's familiar is listening to this, is a very uncomfortable phenomenon. In fact, when a lot of people first have a panic attack, they don't even know they're having a panic attack, they're literally thinking they're having a heart attack and they end up at the ER. They do all kinds of, you know, cardiac exams, they realize there's nothing wrong with your heart and they're like, you know, good news is uh, you don't have a heart attack, the bad news is you had a panic attack. And people really freak out because it's all it's uncomfortable, they, they can't breathe, they think that they're, they're dying. Now this kind of happens spontaneously, we don't necessarily know why panic attacks happen out of the blue, may have something to do with like excess carbon uh, dioxide and, and the interpretation of physiological signals. But regardless, uh, you cannot diagnose someone as having panic disorder just on the basis of having panic attacks. But let's so let's just say you had a panic attack once a month or once a quarter out of the blue, but it didn't particularly bother you. It didn't get in the way of your relationships, didn't get in the way of your ability to work. That's not a disorder. That's just an un it's an uncomfortable, you know, glitch in the system, right? A lot of people may not have panic attacks, but a lot of people have headaches, they have migraines that happen once a month, once a quarter. It's not necessarily a disease or an illness. It's just bad luck, I would say. But let's say you do get panic attacks, and as a result of that, you become paranoid about people, places, or situations that uh, may induce a panic attack. You're paranoid that standing in line at CVS, you're gonna have a panic attack, you're gonna fall, you're gonna hurt yourself, you're gonna embarrass yourself in front of all these people, and so as a result, you're like, I can't stand in any crowded place or line. Right? Or you're like, I'm, I'm afraid of driving my car because what if I have a panic attack while I'm driving on the highway and I'm gonna veer and crash off the side of the road and cause uh, you know, terrible accident, uh, accidents and harm life and limb. And so as a result of that, you stop driving. And as a result of all of this, you stay at home, you don't go outside and you develop what we call agoraphobia, which is the avoidance of going outside or, or situations that may induce an unwanted event such as a panic attack. That's when it becomes a disorder. So the question becomes, what is the pathology? Is the pathology having a panic attack? No, not really. Like I said, it's a fluke, unfortunate physiological response. It becomes a disorder when you start avoiding people, places, and situations, and you don't want that thing to happen. Now, it's a natural thing. Nobody wants pain. Nobody wants discomfort. Nobody wants to have a headache. But if you decide every single time my head starts feeling weird, I'm not gonna go to work, 
And as, as a result, I can't work because I can't show up to work five days a week. And, I, and no, no boss will accept that. And you're essentially, you know, almost functionally or at least acting like you're disabled then that's when it becomes a disorder. So that's my basic message that I always tell people, and there's the number one lesson that comes from psychology is that uh, thoughts, feelings, memories, and sensations, even if they're negative, even if they're distressing, are not necessarily harmful or pathological. It's when we decide to avoid them, that's when the distress comes. So I'll give you another um, analogy. A lot of young folks, in particular in this day and age, I would say Generation Z, have this mindset that work needs to be passionate. I need to be passionate about my work. And I think there's no advice that's more harmful than telling young people they need to be passionate. Because nobody can be happy and passionate all the time. I, I take great meaning in the work that I do, both as a psychologist, as a professor, and as a CEO. But there's a lot of random shit that you have to do. There's paperwork. I'm not passionate about doing paperwork and you know just going through the, the random ups and downs of, of any job, right? But as a result of that, I, I accept that there's essentially distress or negative emotions that come with work. It's just part of the work. As Joe Botaracco, my professor at Harvard Business School said, there's a reason they pay you for it because it's not always fun. But if the expectation is that I need to be passionate about my work, I can never have, I can never be upset at work, I, you know, I don't, I have to like everything that I'm doing. I don't like feeling stress or negative emotions. Then that becomes pathological because you can't tolerate it. You can't stand it because your expectation is totally misaligned with the reality that you're facing. So that's the number one thing I tell people is don't avoid negative thoughts or feelings. Negative thoughts or feelings are not pathological. They're not dangerous. They're not something to be changed, manipulated, altered, distracted from which is essentially how most people live their lives, right? If you think about it, a lot of people, they come home from the end of a long day at work and what do they do? They numb themselves. You numb themselves by drinking at happy hour in order to alter their emotional state. They numb themselves by plopping themselves in front of the TV and watching Netflix or going on their phone and engaging in social media. So whatever your vice of choice is, whether it's digital or it's literally drink or drugs, functionally serves the same purpose, which is the avoidance of emotional phenomenon. And so the number one advice that I have for improving your mental health is do not avoid. And when you notice that you're particularly avoiding people, places, situations, thoughts, feelings, memories, or sensations, uh, because in order to feel better, that's when pathology arises. So the antidote to this, of course, is things like mindfulness which is recognizing, oh, okay, I'm having this thought arise that's negative, or I'm feeling this uh, you know, uh, anxiety in the pit of my stomach, or I'm feeling this panic attack uh, kind of arising in my head, um, or panic-like symptoms, if you will, uh, and it is what it is. I'm noticing it, I'm not judging it, I'm not saying it's bad, I'm not saying, oh, I can't take it, or dreading it, I'm just noticing with the spirit of, um, uh, non-judgmental curiosity. That's the way I kind of I kind of put it. And it's almost providing yourself with a little bit of compassion and saying, look, I don't want to have a headache. Of course, I don't like having a panic attack, but if it's going to be here, can I almost befriend it? Can I make friends with it and just say, hey, look, yeah, why don't you come along for the ride, neighbor? You know, I don't want you here, but I will welcome you anyway, because yeah, this headache is gonna last for 15 minutes. And instead of me shutting down and not working, I'm gonna take it along with me for the ride. Um, 
All right, so that's my advice on uh, improving mental health. Now, I do have a, um, a, a physiological counterpart to that. So that, that gave you sort of some psychological advice, which is basically don't avoid uh, unwanted negative internal states. I do think there's an um, importance to um, improving the, what we're doing on the physiological side as well in terms of um, nutrition, exercise, sleep, focus, and relationships. I call those sort of the uh, five foundational health behaviors, and I think they're actually very underappreciated, right? When you go to a therapist, they're not usually talking about your diet, right? They're not talking about your exercise program. Um, hopefully they're talking about your sleep because that is a common symptom of anxiety and depression um, and your relationships. But I think they kind of ignore it a little bit, um, at least uh, folks that aren't, aren't as holistic maybe as I am, the, the diet and exercise side. Um, there's in fact good uh, research literature that shows that um, meta-analyses and scientific reviews um, show that exercise does improve both depression and anxiety to a small to moderate effect. So, so it's not a panacea, it's not a cure-all despite all the bro science on Twitter that says, you know, just lift weights and you'll feel better. Not the case. I think it's an, a helpful adjunct. It's a helpful supplement that enhances uh, therapy above and beyond it, but it's not a replacement for good psychotherapy uh, if you're really struggling. So, but I do think it's important almost as a foundational health behavior. And if you're really curious on this topic, by the way, um, you can check out the book that I wrote on testosterone optimization. Uh, it's at maximustribe.com slash book, um, and it actually uh, talks about um, all of these uh, health behaviors. So I won't dig into it for the purposes of um, uh, this podcast, but if you're interested in figuring out what you can do on the behavioral side to enhance that, um, you can check us out. Or just go to maximustribe.com. I think there's a link on community. Uh, if you put in your email, we'll give you a free link for the for the ebook, and we don't even charge you for that. All righty. Any other questions coming in? Yes, sir. We've got another one. Can TRT therapy not be good for everyone? For instance, if someone has a mood disorder plus CPTSD, then got on testosterone therapy, could it be responsible for inducing dormant mental health issues? Yeah, um, that's actually a great question. So the question is, um, what are some of the psychological downsides of testosterone replacement therapy? Um, and this is a really great question because typically, um, you know, the associations of testosterone are uh, generally with positive sort of mood effects. So I'll, I'll talk particularly about um, a study that was done um, on TRT, which I thought was kind of um, uh, interesting. Um, they were looking at folks who were put on TRT and looked at some of the subjective sort of uh, you know, benefits that came uh, from be, uh, being on TRT um, and did notice, uh, you know, a couple benefits in terms of the mood side. Um, first, uh, counter to sort of this roid rage uh, stereotype, people always associate TRT or steroids as, you know, causing anger, right? Oh, you're going to get really angry and aggressive. It's almost like the machismo stereotype, if you will. They actually found counter to that a decrease in anger, a decrease in irritability, a decrease in sadness, decrease in tiredness, decrease in nervousness. So a lot of sort of these negative emotions actually tended to decrease. They also found an increase in friendliness, energy, and sense of well-being. And it's almost like counter to the entire stereotype, right? Where you're expecting an angry, like high testosterone dude, 
uh, tends to chill them out, make them actually friendliness. And so that's, that's kind of why I've actually tweeted about this in 2019. I said, hyper-masculinity is actually a warm uh, sort of thing. You know, if you think about it, a high testosterone guy is almost like the strong and silent type. He doesn't need to prove anything and be have a little Napoleon complex and get into a fight at a bar. He's like, all right, I'm I'm a I'm a, I'm you know strong guy. I don't need a, need anything to prove. Now, on the other hand, uh, to your question, can TRT have negative uh, psychological effects, um, especially in terms of CPTSD or what's called complex post traumatic stress disorder? And the answer is yes. And the problem is. Um, more is not always better. The reason that that roid rage stereotype exists is mostly because of anabolic steroids. And anabolic steroids, or sort of super physiological doses of TRT, in which it's almost like an anabolic steroid, can in one study like jack up testosterone levels to the three to five thousand range, where you're talking about three to five times higher than even the most alpha male essentially on Earth which doesn't look human, right? That's why these bodybuilders are essentially able to put on so much muscle in so little time because they're on, you know, on so much chemicals that they don't even resemble a normal human being. Those folks can actually uh, get sort of the anger and irritability sort of issues because their levels are essentially not within a healthy range. And so the thing is though with TRT, because it's an injectable, the typical pattern is that their testosterone levels will skyrocket immediately after the injection and then over the course of the week decrease until the next shot. And so it's really hard to find stable levels. And the thing is, the best way of course addressing this is to, to give yourself an injection every day or every other day, but it's obviously painful and inconvenient to constantly be injecting yourself in order to smooth out those bumps. And so most people as a result only inject themselves about once a week. Um, in order to sort of get around that effect. And so um, it, it is possible if you first, for uh, instance, take too much testosterone to in, in fact uh, exacerbate some of those uh, complex PTSD um, you know, symptoms that you describe. Uh, and uh, because of the dosing uh, and the erraticness of the dosing, the up and down levels of testosterone that come from shots, it is quite possible that it can throw people's moods off because their hormones are really high and then they go low and they go high again. And so I think that just throws a lot of people off. That's why, you know, we're obviously biased, but we're a fan of essentially the oral, you know, regimen because we're not injecting anyone with anything. Uh, you take, you know, an oral dose, your levels are very stable over the course of, you know, days, weeks and months. And so as a result of that, you're not seeing the ups and downs in terms of your hormone levels and your, your, your body and your brain are basically able to adapt to that new normal. And you're like, oh, okay, my levels went from 400 to 800. That's kind of my new normal and it's stable, right? You're, and I think the body honestly craves stability. We don't like ups and downs, right? Imagine you get eight hours of sleep one night, you get four hours of sleep the next night. You get six hours the next night. All the variability throws people off versus if you just sleep six hours a night on average, it would be way better than what I just mentioned in terms of the ups and downs, right? The, the, the human body and I think the human mind in particular seeks and craves stability, seeks routine, and even on a physiological hormonal level seeks, uh, you know, steadiness. Uh, and that's why, you know, ironically, we were just talking about mental health intervention. 
the more routine you can be in terms of when you sleep, when you eat, when you exercise, when you do everything without being sort of OCD about it um, is beneficial because, you know, there's almost a soothingness to the ritual of going through your day. And I think it's the same thing with whether it's CRT or any other drugs, try to take it at the same time, same dosage and try to try to take stuff that has more stable levels. So uh, yes, CRT can make some people feel better, but it can definitely exacerbate, especially if you have underlying pre-existing mental health issues, uh, can make it a little bit worse. And so you really have to work with a good doctor. That's why I don't recommend doing these things on your own. Work with a you know solid board certified physician who is well aware of your mental health issues and is making sure that you know you're only taking the minimal uh, sort of effective dose that is going to give you the best benefit with the minimal amount of side effects um, that you can. So yeah, great question. All right, any other questions from YouTube? We're all caught up. All right, I'll ask a question. Uh, answer a question that came in from uh, YouTube last week. Uh, by the way. Uh, Thank you to uh, Lobo Gris Beto. He just chimed in on uh, Instagram and said, I truly appreciate your weekly radio call, Dr. Cam. Thank you very much for the comment. Uh, it's always great to get positive feedback from folks like you, and thank you for tuning in. Um, uh, this is a question from Boris uh, that came in last week. He said, uh, according to Dr. Human, Huberman, constant phone use can induce a form of adult ADHD. Um, can you talk about that? So. I actually respectfully disagree. Um, it's it's inappropriate to you. I understand his point, and I think in spirit, I understand what he's trying to get at. But it's very misleading to the general public to tell them that constant phone use can induce a form of ADHD. You cannot really induce ADHD. ADHD is a uh, neurological psychiatric phenomenon that's mostly genetic in nature, like true ADHD. Um, uh, and that's why as a result, it's actually less responsive to psychotherapy and better responsive to stimulant medications because it's really something that's happening in terms of improper dopaminergic functioning on the brain's sort of level. Now, there are states that may uh, induce uh, inattentiveness or hyperactivity that may look like ADHD, right? So for instance, if you have a high degree of anxiety, for whether it's acutely or temperamentally, because you have, let's say, generalized anxiety disorder, that may get mistaken for ADHD because obviously when you're really stressed or nervous, you may have a hard time focusing. That's not of ADHD, it's not a form of ADHD, it's symptoms that are being mistaken for ADHD. So you always wanna make sure, and you're doing a proper differential diagnosis, which only psychologists and psychiatrists can do, not neuroscientists, with all due respect to Dr. Huberman, um, you know, you have to make sure that you're doing a proper differential diagnosis. Now, is constant phone use potentially messing with the dopaminergic system? Potentially, right? Uh, you know, I talked about in my dopamine fasting protocol how uh, there's, a, there's essentially a, a form of double reinforcement that's happening when you use your phone. When you grab your phone, whenever you're feeling lonely, angry, tired, bored, stressed, et cetera, those negative emotions, um, there's a negative reinforcement that happens because when you hyper-focus on your phone or your social media app that you're using on your phone, it makes those negative feelings go away. And obviously that makes us feel better, right? Because you're numbing or distracting yourself from them. In addition, it provides a positive reinforcement when that little red light goes on, the red notification goes on, and it's like, you have a new message, 
isn't this cool article? Check out this amazing video. Oh my God, cats. Uh, so, you know, you get the positive pleasure and reward and it's really addictive, <clears throat> excuse me, to have both the negative reinforcement and the positive reinforcement that happens at the same time. And so as a result of that, <clears throat> we essentially become intolerant, as I was mentioning previously uh, about sort of psychological health. We become intolerant of having any sort of negative states and we sort of use essentially these digital devices as drugs um, in order to feel better. And as a result of that, uh, because we can't sit there and be bored, we are constantly are almost driven to distraction. There's a great book on ADHD, by the way, with the same title, Driven to Distraction. Uh, we kind of drive ourselves to distraction in order to constantly chase a certain emotional state. But that's actually not ADHD. It is uh, essentially really almost like a, um, a form of emotional avoidance. Uh, it's a highly conditioned emotional uh, uh, avoidance behavior um, that is inducing um, a constant form of distraction. Now the reality though is it's not ADHD because if you actually practice dopamine fasting and you did not grab your phone every time you felt bad, but instead use your phone during regularly scheduled intervals. So for instance, if you say, I will check my messages for five minutes after every meal, it's not because of an emotion, it's because of a time, uh, it's much less likely to, to be um, providing that negative reinforcement that's so dangerous that I talked about. Uh, and as a result of that, it's less likely to be distracting because you're not gonna have the impulse to pull out your phone every single time you feel bad versus you're just checking it on a schedule, on a routine. And so um, I uh, agree that constant phone use can cause uh, distractibility, inattentiveness, irritability, and certainly have addiction-like qualities, uh, but I would not say it induces adult ADHD. I don't think people need to be afraid that they're gonna develop a neurological disorder from constant phone use. I don't think that, uh, I don't think the evidence or the science quite frankly bans that. And I think people misunderstand it. I'm sure his intentions are good by saying a form of ADHD, but that's, I think we have to be very careful not to pathologize uh, things and saying it's going to induce an illness or a disorder because people are literally going to think that they're, they're breaking their brain. Uh, and I don't think it's quite that bad. Uh, I just think it's a temporary sort of altered state that we enter when we're kind of using our phone. But long term, who knows? We don't really understand sort of the neurological effects. Uh, but I, I, don't, I, I think it's too far-fetched to claim that it induces ADHD or even a form of it. We have to be very precise and careful about the language that we use as scientists, and especially if you're a clinician, we're, we're probably more precise about it because we're the ones actually diagnosing and treating people with ADHD. Um, and so I think maybe because I'm an actual clinician, I'm a lot more careful about throwing around the word ADHD. All right, uh, we have a question coming in from Instagram, uh, which is what is the recommended duration of your program and what would be the lasting effect of a one to three month treatment? Yeah, it's a great question. So I think this is an important question because um, there's a difference between treating an acute uh, uh, condition or a disorder versus you are optimizing something for the long term. So let's say you got like an infection, you got a bacterial infection, and obviously let's say if you got a UTI, urinary tract infection, you're not feeling very good because it hurts every time you go to the bathroom. Um, and obviously you should get that, you know, taken care of and treated right away. You'll probably be on a course of antibiotics. You'll take it for a week or two and or at least until you finish the bottle of pills. 
hopefully that will resolve your treatment and you'll never have to take it again because you've essentially killed off all of the bacteria that's responsible for your condition. So that's obviously an example of an acute treatment, right? In this case though, if your body's not producing enough testosterone, now it's able to produce testosterone, it's not producing enough testosterone, which is what's called secondary hypogonadism. And that may be because of obesity, maybe because of your lifestyle, maybe because of endocrine disrupting chemicals that come from environmental pollutants or the combination thereof. For all the aforementioned reasons, you need something that's going to increase your levels and maintain it long-term, right? And so the recommended duration of the program is essentially indefinitely, right? Because as long as you're taking the protocol or the medications, it will increase your testosterone levels as long as it's working and doing what it's supposed to do. And you'll get the benefit for as long as you're on it. There's no tolerance, there's no dependence that sort of forms. You can discontinue it anytime without any problems. But the question is, if your testosterone levels are significantly increased and you're feeling better, you're performing better, why would you want to stop? As long as you're not experiencing any side effects, there's no reason to stop. And so it's really designed as a daily use treatment that you can theoretically take forever. You don't need to cycle off of it, actually. Um, now you can, if you, if you want to experiment after a few years and be like, what was it like to be off of it? I forgot what it's like. You're welcome to do so, but there's no clinical reason to actually do that. So the, the thing is though, there is no lasting effect. Uh, when you stop taking the protocol, your testosterone levels will go back down to exactly where they were. Unlike TRT, will actually shut you down and put you way lower than where you started. You know, on our program, let's say you start at a 500 or 400, you go up to 800 or 900, you'll stay on 800 and 900 uh, as long as you're on the medication. If you stop taking it, you'll go back right down to where you started at 400 or 500. So there's no lasting effect of the treatment, just like any other uh, regimen. Like if you took vitamin D, for instance, as an oral supplement, uh, as a, it's essentially a hormone as well, it'll increase your levels for as long as you take it. But obviously, as you, when you stop taking it, it's not going to have a prolonged effect, right? Because uh, it doesn't. It's not magic, right? It's not. It's not curing a bacteria or or, or uh, removing something that should have shouldn't have been there. If you think about it, hormones, it's almost like food. You never not need food. You you need your hormone levels to be uh, at the just right levels. And taking a, a daily hormone supplement medication like the ones in the Maximus King protocol will basically work as long as you need it to work. So. Uh, basically, you can take it forever as long as you're getting the cost-benefit ratio that you'd like in terms of you're getting the benefits that you want, you're not getting too many side effects or any other issues. As long as you're, look, you're feeling good and your doctor is happy with it, you can take it forever. But yeah, great question. Any? Oh, we had some questions from Discord from last week. Rhino asked about, can you talk about IQ and how malleable one's own level of intelligence is and if there's any strategies one can use to increase intelligence? Um, so, uh, yeah, uh, I think, uh, one of the Instagram people, uh, thank me for answering that question. Absolutely. Feel free. If you have any other questions to type them in. Um, so IQ or your intelligence quotient, uh, is, um, the best measure of intelligence that we have. Now there's folks out there like Nicholas Taleb who question, uh, you know, the utility of IQ. Um, if you actually ask most people again, who are actual clinicians, the people who are actually doing IQ testing for the purposes of, you know, uh, educational placement into like, you know, gifted and talented education programs or deciding if someone has a learning disability or ADHD, which is what clinical psychologists, particularly neuropsychologists do, um, IQ is still incredibly useful. Um, now is it perfect? No. 
Uh, are there different types of intelligence, as Daniel Goleman said? Maybe, but uh, it's hard to quantify like what is emotional intelligence, right? Everyone talks about emotional intelligence, but we can't really measure it, right? And so that's why Jordan Peterson, who's a fellow clinical psychologist, actually talks about there's no such thing as emotional intelligence because strictly from a statistical standpoint, how do you measure it? How do you know someone's emotionally intelligent? If you can't measure it, you can't manage it, you can't study it as a phenomenon. So I actually agree, uh, make the argument that they're really, when we're talking about emotional uh, intelligence, we should be talking about agreeableness. Agreeableness is one of the big five personality traits and is essentially your ability to get along well with other people. And that's the closest thing to an emotional intelligence that we have in that it's a reliable and it's a valid construct, meaning that if you rate yourself high on agreeableness, your friends and your family probably will too. And so there's a concordance in terms of the the rating or the evaluation, meaning it's not just made up in your head, but other people see you in the same way uh, and there's essentially construct validity. <clears throat> that being said, you're asking about generalized intelligence, uh, which is IQ. Now, the test retest reliability for IQ is incredibly high. That's how we know it's a useful, it's a, it's a useful construct because if I test your IQ, and then I retest your IQ 25 years later, right, as a 20-year-old versus a 45-year-old, it tends to be very similar. Um, and so it's a very stable measure across the lifespan. That's why when you're doing IQ testing as part of the gifted and talented education evaluation, you test people as soon as like second grade, fifth grade, because it predicts their IQ well into adulthood. And so you can identify essentially people who are smarter uh, by measure of IQ uh, from a very early age. Um, so I do think it's actually very useful. And in my experience, you know, when you identify people who are high IQ, you can put them in separate classes so they don't become too bored and that they're appropriately challenged. And so I do think it's actually a useful construct. And even though, like I said, it isn't perfect, right? There's some disagreement about, you know, at the extremes, um, you know, uh, is there a lot of noise in the data? You know, there may be, but I still think compared to every other test measure or interview or evaluation that we have, it is still an incredibly strong predictor of academic performance and occupational performance. In fact, I talked about on Twitter the other day how there's a um, uh, contracting company that actually uses IQ testing to hire people. And interestingly, in the US, the threshold is 125. In China, it's 140. They have a higher bar for Chinese candidates than they do US candidates. And someone asked me why, and I was like, well, uh, Besides the fact that, you know, Chinese may be more intelligent, their population is so much larger, right? Out of 1 billion people, there are literally 5 million of those people who have an IQ above 140 because an IQ of 140 is a 99.5th percentile, meaning one out of every 200 people has that level of IQ, which would basically certify you as a genius. And they have enough people out of, you know, 5 million uh, of, of those folks that they can hire literally a genius uh, for every single software engineer that they hire. Um, we actually use IQ testing as part of Maximus's hiring process as well. We don't have strict cutoffs, but we try to hire the smartest people that we can. And we have also found, uh, in our at least the small employee population, that it does predict, uh, you know, problem solving, essentially like intellectual horsepower, etc. Um, so, uh, despite you know the recent provocations that it's a useless measure, uh, for all intents and purposes, you have to talk to any clinical psychologist school slash educational psychologist or, or anyone who's a neuropsychologist and uses it to evaluate, uh, for instance, uh, testing, 
another example I'll give you is um, if you test people's IQ and they find that they're very smart, right, high IQ, but they're performing very poorly at school, it often indicates that there's something going on, right? They may have ADHD, they may have a learning disability, or they may have a psychological you know, issue uh, in, in that they're not able to apply themselves and they're underperforming relative to their level of intelligence. Because if you're high intelligent, you should be performing pretty well in school. School should come easy to you because the ability to, for instance, memorize things probably comes easier. The ability to grasp complex uh, you know, problems, solve problems, etc do verbal reasoning, mathematics, et cetera, should come pretty easy to you. So I actually still think it's very useful. Um, now, is it modifiable? No, not necessarily. You're not gonna sig significantly change your IQ unless it's a detriment in the first place. Now, if there have been some nutritional deficiencies that may be impairing your cognitive performance, let's say you have a magnesium deficiency, uh, and magnesium is very important for cognitive function, you replenish your magnesium levels, it may kind of boost your levels back up to where your genetic potential or baseline should have been and thus restore essentially your level of intelligence. But it's not going to necessarily boost your IQ above and beyond what you're capable of, like the Maximus King protocol can increase your testosterone. But it is a great question. Uh, I would focus less on trying to improve your IQ and more about learning behavioral strategies to improve your focus. Because in the end, it doesn't matter how intelligent you are. If you can't focus, you can't get shit done. So if you're interested in this topic, I recommend reading an article that I wrote called The Keystone Habit, which is a system for focusing and productivity that can be used whether you have ADHD or you're a high-performing CEO and you just need to, to you know, uh, use a system or a protocol in order to improve the way that you work. So uh, great question, Ryan. Uh, hopefully that was a helpful answer despite you know there's no secret trick to improving your IQ. Uh, but it is an interesting topic to talk about. All right, folks, it is 7.02. We're going to wrap up the radio show for today. Thank you for a lot of the great questions. Shout out to everyone on Instagram Live who asked some great questions. Shout out to everyone who asked some great questions on YouTube. And apologies to the folks on Clubhouse. Uh, we had a little error with the app and it shut down a little prematurely, but we'll catch you again next week. Uh, if you're interested in what we're doing at Maximus, check us out at MaximusTribe.com slash uh, clubhouse that's the link for the clubhouse listeners uh, you can check out what we're doing as i mentioned we're live and operational in california and florida and hopefully soon the rest of the country as well uh, if you're interested in our community you want to ask any questions that i can answer for next week on thursday at six o'clock join our community at discord.maximustribe.com uh, you can check us out at, uh, on there we have a lot of great discussion about all the aforementioned topics that we talked about today and we have a coaching channel uh, where we can help coach you uh, to implement some of these uh, learnings into your life.